I get really fired up and have a sense of deep pride, not arrogance, I hope, but deep pride when I give myself permission to dream about what's possible and let go of what's easy. So what I mean by that is the courage is not the move. The courage is not the execution. The courage is allowing yourself to dream of the possibility. Hey everyone, my name is Jack Kavanagh and you are very welcome to the Only Human Podcast. Today I have the pleasure of welcoming Philip McKernan to the podcast. An inspirational speaker, writer and filmmaker, Philip works with entrepreneurs and business leaders all over the world. When people are seeking clarity about their future or want to move through roadblocks, seen or unseen, they call Philip. As a speaker, he has inspired and challenged the Canadian Olympic team and the Pentagon, to name a few, and is also the founder and spearheading the One Last Talk movement, which is absolutely worth checking out online. Philip helps people get clear on who they are and where they need to go as they transition from a place of being stuck to more aligned in different parts of their life. He has a knack of getting into all sorts of scenarios, from caddying for presidents to being chased and nearly killed by bull elephants in Nigeria. He's traveled to over 80 countries around the globe, built an orphanage in Peru and written five books despite being dyslexic. His first documentary called Give and Grow explores how the gift of giving makes us feel more worthy and alive. At his heart, Philip is a human being who shows up in the world every day and challenges people to do the same. Enjoy. Philip McKernan, you are very welcome to the Only Human podcast. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me here. Appreciate it. Oh, I'm delighted. So, so tell us, where are you coming from? Where are you speaking to us? The big city of Ballyvaughan on the west coast of Ireland, which is a very small little, I suppose, a fishing village because there is some fishing done here still. Um, small population and we're based here till at least November of this year just to take some space and get away from the, the madness that's going on in the world today. Yeah, fantastic. And, you know... For most of our audience, they they won't yet know who you are. And Ireland hasn't been your home base for the last number of years. We'll get into that. But to give them a bit of context and sense of things, who was Philip McKernan growing up and as a teenager and a young adult? And give us a little sense of that path that you went on. Yeah, and I don't want to come across as bashing Ireland as it relates to this, but uh, this is the journey nonetheless. I mean, I was a very insecure, um, very insecure young kid who spent an extraordinary amount of time trying to fit in. And in that process, I never, ever, ever took the time to discover who I was, what I believed, what I cared about, what was important to me. Uh, who I was at at my core, uh, what are my gifts versus my talents, you know, how could I impact the world, Uh, what did I want to do, Um, you know, and and I say this with a lot of love and respect to this country, Um, you know, a lot of of our upbringing here, you know, for many kids around the world is being told who they are and what they are, you know, you're you're a particular religion, you're a particular race, your skin color is a particular tone, um, etc. And, and, and you're being kind of told what to do. And then you're put into a system called school, which, you know, really for me, just, you know, I suppose exaggerated that that journey for me, um, you know, it being told who I was and what I was here to learn. And there wasn't a lot of time to discover who I was. And I don't blame the system for that. I blame the system. I blame, you know, you know, the parents, religion, but I also take a huge amount of responsibility when I look back. But a very insecure kid who didn't understand um, that I was incredibly different and that if I'd embraced that a bit more, I probably could have been a little bit more happier within my own skin. Yeah. I think you speak to a lot of people when you say that. Um, In many cases, despite people's best efforts, the system is rigged against them. Um, And it's nothing, it's no failing of their own. And yet it leads to 
uh, a disingenuous life and people sort of feeling this sort of existential vacuum or quiet discontent that gradually rises up within them. And as you go into your adult life, then you, to use some words that might be your own, um, you climbed a number of mountains and hit the peak only to find that maybe that wasn't quite what you were looking for. Yeah, I, I made lots of assumptions that if I made enough money, then I'd be happy. I'd have the freedom of choice, the freedom to go and do what I really wanted to do, which which sounds like a, you know, a fairly logical argument and perspective, but it certainly is fundamentally flawed and it was for me and it is, I believe, for millions, if not billions of people around the world. Um, and in that process, the other thing I was completely ignoring and the thing I forgot to share earlier on is I just had a real disdain for who I was. I didn't like who I was. And I don't really talk about that a lot, but I didn't have a lot of regard for Philip McKernan. Uh, I didn't like who I was. Um, and I didn't address that because I was too busy trying to fit in and making everybody else or trying to get everyone else to accept me, to see me, to like me. And I ignored that one big chunk, which inevitably came back to haunt me in a, in a very big way. Because the goals I set for myself were goals that lay outside of Philip McKernan. They lay outside of the essence of who I was. And there were things that were, were external, extrinsic, that I actually pursued and in many cases achieved. And then felt like a bit more of a failure because I didn't get the associated euphoric feeling or just sense of togetherness or sense of achievement when I hit those peaks. Um, and I'm not talking about, you know, flying to the moon or, or building a billion dollar business, but things that were significant for me at the time. And when I achieved those things, they just were lacking in depth in terms of the associated feeling. And rather than having the wisdom to say, hey, maybe you just picked the wrong goal, Philip, maybe these are things you just don't really want deep down in your soul. I actually just said, there's something wrong with you, Philip. There's something wrong with you. The finger always came back to me. There was always something wrong with Philip. And uh, I think we're really good at beating the shit out of ourselves in this world. Um, we often speak to ourselves in ways that we would never speak to even our worst enemy in the world. Yeah, and you know what? The relationship with ourselves is, like, you are literally the most important person in the world. And the relationship you have with yourself is absolutely everything. And if that's not a nice place to be, it manifests in every other part of your life. Um. I think the fantastic thing is, though, is that you feel after a number of years in the adult world that something's a little bit amiss here. And you actually start to pay attention to that voice, which is something that so many people find themselves far longer pushing it down than you actually did. And you talk about like midlife crisis. That's that's literally just your life catching up on you that not listening to that voice that has been gnawing away saying, mm, maybe things are a bit off here. Um, that's back in Celtic Tiger times um, when things were high flying in Ireland, you know, people lost the run of themselves in so many ways. Um, and you decided to make a pretty monumental shift in your life at that stage. What kind of age were you then? And what was, what what was it that brought on that shift? I'm 47 years old now. I've been living in North America for essentially 13 years, 13 going on 14 years. Um, and before that, the shift had begun. Um, and, and sometimes there's an event. Um, maybe it's, a, it's a, some sort of, of you know, wake-up call that we have, whether it's a near-death experience. Sometimes we have a, a loss of a, lo a loved one. We have a, a health scare, a mental breakdown. There's often some catalyst. Unfortunately, they tend to be quite negative because as human beings, we wait often until the pain gets so significant before we move. Um, and for me, actually, it was a, an accidental meeting um, with a lady in Sri Lanka going to an orphanage in Sri Lanka and realizing that uh, a number of things. One is perspective. You know, I think sometimes we get caught up in our own shit. We get caught up in, you know, paying the bills. We get caught up in our own insecurities and we think our problems are the biggest and the worst in the world. And in some regards they are, and sometimes we don't pay enough attention to them, but other times we get lost in them. And going to Sri Lanka and seeing the devastation and going to this orphanage and seeing these kids who had been abandoned or had lost their parents in the tsunami, just really put my life into perspective. And it allowed me to kind of move away from that victim mentality, which I'd become very accustomed to. But it was very subtle. I wasn't the obvious victim. I was the subtle victim, the person that, you know, just 
used a lot of excuses in the world to not to shine and not to show up and, and, and not to be unapologetic. And when I left there, that had just something shifted in my body. Something shifted just deep down inside of me. And the other thing that happened was the realization that, God, maybe I can make an impact. It was just, just a thought. And then the final piece, when I got back to Ireland, everyone was hungover and complaining about drinking too much alcohol and dreading going back to work, as indeed I was. And the final thing was, and it sounds so obvious, was I'm, I'm choosing this life. I can choose a different life. And that sounds so obnoxiously simple. But I think that's the point. A lot of people go, no, 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 it's not that easy. Well, it actually is probably easier than you imagine. And for me, I would have argued that I couldn't move from Ireland. I didn't have a visa. I didn't have the money. I didn't have the this. All the reasons in the world. And the reality is I did. And I finally decided, and one of the, the physical representations of a shift was, it, was, it, was a, a final decision to leave the shores of Ireland um, and to go, go to North America and to start a new life. Um, and I felt at that time I needed to leave the shores of Ireland. I needed to leave everything that was familiar to really discover who I was. Now, people don't have to leave Ireland if they want to discover who they are. That's not what I'm suggesting. But for me, that's what I needed to do. And, uh, and that's what I did. And it was a, it's been an extraordinary journey. I love it. You know, it's, it's so easy to put complexity and add complexity on top of our lives to mask over what ultimately are simple decisions, but they're incredibly difficult decisions. Um, and so you head for North America, for Vancouver initially, and what does life look like there? And like in a practical sense, because what you began doing is poles apart from what you're doing now in many ways. Yeah. So I think, I think the first thing is that, you know, to, to recognize is that I didn't leave because the Celtic Tiger had come to an end. I didn't leave because I didn't have money or I didn't have whatever. I left before the Celtic Tiger came to an end. Um, and um, I just didn't like what I saw. And I didn't like what I saw in my own life. So I left. Um, the one area that I, I landed that a lot of people don't know is I landed in a place called Edmonton, which is in a, in a, in a, in a province of, uh, I almost said state, and all my Canadian friends would be deeply, deeply upset, but a province uh, that lies just next to, to British Columbia. And I landed in there because I was still chasing this idea that if I had enough money, short-term, medium-term, or long-term, then I could really go and do what I wanted to do, which I was, still wasn't sure what that, what that was. Although deep down, I, God, I knew. I knew for years. And um, I was trying to build this real estate company and this real estate, you know, because at the time in Ireland, everyone was investing in Bulgaria and they were investing in, you know, Spain and Portugal and, you know, everybody from the taxi driver to the carpenter to the millionaire who had cash in the bank was buying multiple properties. And we all thought we're the next Donald Trump. And, um, and, and, and no one was investing in Canada and the economics were phenomenal and it was, Brit you know, English speaking and it was, you know, British common law and it was just a lot safer. And, it, and we had our ducks in a row and we had everything lined up and we spent two years putting this whole plan together and we had big money lined up. And then the Celtic Tiger happened and, you know, our income, our cash flow, all our money coming from, from Ireland to invest just turned off, like literally like a shower turning off. It was overnight. I'll never forget it. And we had spent every penny we had in savings. And I was down to $200 in the bank account. And I'm sitting in my mother's house in Selbridge, County Kildare. And my wife says, it's not working. We had come back for, I think, Christmas because we wanted to get away from the goddamn cold. And um, she says, it's not working. And I don't want to go back. And then I said to her, and I said, fuck it, I'm going to do this coaching thing. Because the pain of not doing what I really wanted to do finally, finally, finally caught up. And then we moved to Vancouver um, and that was another new beginning within the new beginning, if you like. Mm. Yeah, the pain, the pain. You know, they say like you can you can change in two ways, uh, towards pleasure and away from pain. But you said it already in the call. Pain is that thing that gets the fire under you, isn't it? It it is the it is the instigator in life that will. Um, waking up the fire within you or or really um, allow you just to keep masking over. And, and at that moment, you have such a choice because you could have backed down. Um, and I love that. And so... This I, can I add one other thing? And I think this is the thing that people forget. 
And I've had many people in Ireland or particularly in the in the United States and, and in Canada, you know, cite the move from Ireland. Because I didn't want to leave Ireland. Like I wasn't dying to get out. I didn't hate Ireland. The cops weren't chasing me. Revenue weren't chasing me that I believe anyway. And I wasn't like, I wasn't dying to get out of the country. It was a really hard but obvious move for me. So it was really challenging. I want, I want to get that across to people. Like the hardest decision I've ever made. But people have often cited it as a really courageous thing. Like, oh my God, how courageous were you? How brave were you to do that? And I go, I've sat with that and it's never landed for me. I've never felt really courageous with that move. But where I feel deeply courageous, and I don't say this lightly, is when I began to believe or began to imagine the possibility of leaving the shores of Ireland. I I feel deeply courageous when I began to feel and connect with the idea of of going into coaching and creating a boutique coaching company. I get really fired up and have a sense of deep pride, not arrogance, I hope, but deep pride when I give myself permission to dream about what's possible and let go of what's easy. So what I mean by that is the courage is not the move. The courage is not the execution. The courage is allowing yourself to dream of the possibility. The execution is just the execution. The execution is just the byproduct of something else. So if we can encourage people just to take a step back and rather than telling themselves the narrative, I can't leave the bank. This is the most secure job. My mother has told me, my dad has told me, my whole, I cannot leave. Just say, what if you just took a step back and without any preconceptions, without any stories, just said, but what if I did? What would I do? Who would I be? Where could I go? What would be possible? And just allow yourself to dream and then go back and say, no, don't want that. Want to stay in the bank for the rest of my life? Great. But at least you've scratched the itch. And at least when you look back in 90 years or 40 years or 100 years, you can go back and go, yeah, but I thought about it. I was going to do it, but I chose not to. Rather than going, fuck, what if I did? What if I'd made that move? What if I got on that boat to Iceland? What if I had opened that you know, that coffee shop or started that podcast. So it's the permission to dream is the piece that I encourage people to do. Forget about action. Action is important. It's a necessary thing at some point, but at least dream and then decide to act or not. And that's okay. Yeah, it's it's the allowing, you know, that permission and allowing. Um, so much gets held back because we don't give ourselves that. And... and and so when you begin your coaching, like that's not an easy road. It's by no means, people look to the States and they look at Tony Robbins and they look at all these big high flying things and coaching is becoming the most fast growing thing. And you can log on. And if you're in the coaching world every day, you're getting fired with a hundred ads to say six figures to a successful coaching, like six steps to six figures in the coaching industry. And it's just not reality. Um, Talk to me about that deep desire to want to be a partner in coaching people for good, for, for all the right reasons. But talk to me about the reality of getting that off the ground. What does that look like? It is, I'm telling you one thing, if I could turn back the clock, there are days where I've sat and I've wondered, did I have I taken the right path? Um, because I'm telling you, there is probably no more difficult industry to actually, and I wouldn't say make it because I don't think you ever make it because making it is all relative to what people, you know, what people think, whether it's a revenue figure or whatever, there's huge amounts of egos in, in this business. And most people are in, in coaching because they're insecurities, not because they have a desire to make an impact. They want to be seen. They're desperate to be seen as opposed to allow other people to shine. Um, the coaching industry is also wrought with a lot of people who are just full of shit. And I know that sounds easy for me to say. And other people might say, well, you're the same occurring. Great. If you believe I'm the same, then brilliant. Step into my work and then judge me afterwards. Don't judge me from afar without understanding who I am and why I do it. But there's a lot of people in the industry that, uh, and the thing that I've ended up attracting, which wasn't part of my plan and I didn't see it coming, was a lot of people who coach in the industry, uh, a lot of people who are, you know, very, very highly qualified, you know, psychotherapists, psychiatrists, have a lot of professionals coming, even though I don't have any qualification or any letter after my name. Um, so it, it's a really tough industry. And there's this idea sometimes in Ireland where Asher, the, 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 the Americans would buy any old shite, you know, they'd buy anything off you. And that's not true. America is, is I believe, a fantastic country that that is is deeply divided and I don't believe Donald Trump has divided America. I think America, he's just basically is exposing the disconnectiveness that has already pre-existed. Um, America has a lot of challenges, but it's still the place of possibility, not opportunity. 
If you go and you work your ass off and you provide value, America, Canada, I believe anywhere in the world will give you a shot. And, um, and it did, um, but I've had to work extraordinarily hard. And it has been, I don't know if I could have picked a harder journey. I really don't. I don't think I could have picked a harder journey. And the reason that coaches come and go are that coaches are leaning on their Lamborghini saying, hey, come, and me and, come with me and I'll make you a million dollars in six months. And then two months later, they're, they're, they're peddling a different message. And there's no problem pivoting, but fundamental shifts. And then six months later, they're doing something else. The reason they're coming and going is because they're not connected to a deeper narrative. They're not connected to a deeper why. They're not doing it because... It's almost like I feel I have to do this. And that's might sound so bizarre. I don't really feel I have a choice. I believe I was born to do this. I believe there is a gift, which is not Philip McKernan. It's not me, the gift. There's a gift that has been given to me for a very short period of time in my life. And I have to be the custodian of that gift and use it in a very responsible way until it is either taken from me or I'm taken out of this world. And coaching is one of the most beautiful, extraordinary privileges that any human being, to sit in front of a human being and for that human being to look to you for guidance, for care, for support, to be challenged. My God, anybody who treats that with disrespect, anybody who thinks that they have to have the answers. The worst coaches in the world are the ones that have the answers for everything because it's all about them needing to be the superhero. The heroes are the people and the men and women who walk in the door. And my job is to get out of my own way and just to be a conduit, to ask them the right questions, to challenge them deeply, to push them hard, but know deep down that they're the ones with the answers. I have to suspend my self-interest. I have to suspend my own curiosities and to be there for that person. You have to suspend the desire and the need for that person to like you and adore you and love you and actually be okay if they think you're a complete asshole as long as you've got their uh, best interests in mind. And somebody called me a life coach yesterday and I just actually said, listen, I, I really don't mind if you do, but I'd prefer if you don't, because unfortunately everyone, in the, you know, this seems to be, everyone seems to be becoming life coaches. Um, and I'm not saying there's not great people out there, there is, but coaching is a very sacred thing. I'm not even crazy about the word coaching, but it's a sacred thing to hold space, as I call it, for another human being is one of the greatest privileges that I have ever, 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 ever been given. I love that you talk about it with such reverence, with the words responsibility and privilege, because, you know, somebody asked me yesterday, and I am very much on the beginnings of that journey. And I'm going to tell you something in a minute um, that will reveal why. Um, someone asked me yesterday to describe what a one-on-one -on -one is like. And I said, I'm not here to give you any of the answers. What I am here to do is to hold space for a courageous conversation where I will hold you in your pain and your potential and we will see where it needs to go for you. And there is such a privilege for somebody to even give you the opportunity to be in that space with them. And that's not to be taken lightly. And the amount of work, if you're to be responsible about it, the amount of work that needs to be done on yourself and the amount of self-awareness and the extent to which you have to suspend all of that when you enter into a space with someone is huge. And I don't think there's enough weight given to that before people enter in. Yesterday, Philip marked eight years since I had a spinal cord injury that left me with 15% muscle function. I broke my neck at the age of 20, diving into the water on a beach, doing something that I'd done every day for the whole summer, working as a lifeguard and as a windsurfing and surfing instructor. And life took a massive turn for me. Um, the last eight years has been remarkable because people... I was given a platform that I never wanted. Um, we made documentaries, um, TED Talks, number of different things. Um, and everything the world wanted to become about me. And in every talk that I've ever delivered, it has been one of the first phrases out of my mouth is that my story is just your story written in different words. 
And the reason for that is because this is not about me. And it's why I entered coaching. Uh, coaching isn't the area that I was trained in. But just like you, I couldn't deny it. And it was painful for me to actually have, to enter it. But I, it was something that I couldn't resist. Um, and I got to a place of that quiet discontent of denying it for years and years and years that I eventually just had to allow it. And like you, I can totally associate with the idea that it is a remarkably hard but remarkably rewarding space to be. Um, the reason I told you that is because like you, I very much believe that our greatest purpose lies right beside our greatest pain. But so many people aren't willing to unpack the pain. Yep. And because they're making the journey about them. And you, you just nailed it. They don't want to unpack their pain. And, and therein lies the answer and the question all in one. They're trying to protect themselves. And if they only could understand that by sharing, by experiencing their pain and subsequently sharing that pain with the world, what you do is two things. You free yourself of the pain, of the shackles of it, of its grip on you that you're not even aware of. And the second thing you do is you give people permission to do the same because you, you let somebody next door at the other side of the world you let them know that they're not alone and that actually not sharing your pain, not experiencing your pain is one of the most selfish acts a human being can take on. And we see this in parenting all the time. But my kids don't need to know that I was, was raped or my parents don't need, or my kids don't need to know that my parents were tougher than me. My, your kids know and they don't know. They don't know the details, but they pay the price for the event. Guaranteed. So, so I, I applaud you, by the way, and thank you, um, and I'm not going to say sorry because I'm sure you hear that all the time, but I want to say well done to you for taking a huge, huge uh, challenge um, and deciding to, rather than wallow in it, to take that and decide to do something good with it. I commend you for that. Yeah, well, a number of minutes ago, you talked about perspective. Perspective shapes our reality. Um, everything, everything about life is the lens through which we see it and you get two options when you face major events like that. You talked earlier about uh, often it's our biggest pains that lead us to to change. Um, you get two options when you face that point in your life, you know, um, to face it, to look at it, to unpack it, and to go through the hurt and, and, and growth that comes from that, to free yourself from that. Or you push that down so deep and have all the maladaptive behaviors and actions and ways of being in the world that ultimately destroy you from the inside out and have negative impact on all those people around you as well. Um, and, and that's the choice. And I don't judge either way, um, but I'm here to support for those people that do want to open, open the tin, open the lid on that to see where it goes. Let's talk about one last talk. This is really important. And it's important because of all of what we've just shared. Can you tell the audience what one last talk is and why it's important? So one last talk is was born out of I suppose frustration and maybe a sprinkle of inspiration and that is I wanted to create an event and experience an opportunity for people to share um, you know really share a story or part of themselves that perhaps the world has not seen or heard from before so basically the bottom line is imagine a TED event but you've got 15 minutes to stand on a stage and share the one last talk you'll ever give what would you say and who would you say it to um, and within a one last talk structure, you're not allowed to talk about global warming. You're not allowed to talk about COVID-19. You're not allowed to talk about Donald, Donald Trump's hairpiece, whether it's real or it's not, who knows. 
Um, and it's not a place to give your kids advice. It's a place to share a deep part of yourself that perhaps the world has never heard. Maybe it's a part of you that you've denied, a part of you that you've shoved down, a part of you that you're ashamed of or whatever. And we wrote a book with that called One Last Talk. And um, so bottom line is that we encourage people to go through the process of extracting a One Last Talk, which involves writing a One Last Letter, a One Last Message, et cetera, et cetera. And at the very least, we encourage them to give that one last talk to at least one other human being. So two people get together, they read the book, and they do the, the process together. And it's probably, and I'm not just saying this, because I actually feel a real lack of ownership of one last talk. I feel it was created <clears throat> and, has, and has been kept moving and will continue to be moved by the brave men and women who actually go through the process. But I think it's one of the most cathartic, therapeutic things that I've ever had the privilege to be involved in because it really transforms people's perspectives on the parts of themselves that they've hidden from the world. And what happens is all of us ultimately want to be accepted. We want to be seen. But the problem is that we hide parts of ourselves away because we're embarrassed or ashamed and we're afraid the world will judge us. And it's not until we take those pieces and we give them to the world do people get to see us fully and they get to accept us fully. And ironically, the very thing we want is the very thing that we need to do is the opposite of what we're doing. And a great example of that is there's a new book that just is out this week or last week called Razor, uh, what is it? Razor, uh, sorry, Sparrow and the Razor Wire, excuse me. And it's by a gentleman called Quan, who committed murder many years ago, served, you know, almost 20 years in prison. He did a one last talk. Somebody went through the process with him, a guy called Tucker Max. He said, you should write a book. He ends up supporting him, vice versa, and his book has been published. And I was very honored to write the foreword for the book, but that's not relevant here. Um, and by sharing the thing that he was most ashamed of, which was murder, he was actually accepted and has been accepted and will continue to be accepted by hundreds of people, thousands and probably millions. Not to say what he did is okay, but what they'll begin to understand through his storytelling is, ah, the circumstances which he brought up contributed to the life that he ended up leading. And it gives us an opportunity to forgive and to, to build bridges and so on. So I could talk about One Last Talk forever, but that essentially is, is why One Last Talk was created, to help people heal from the inside out. Yeah, it's amazing. And I've seen, I've seen that talk only earlier this summer. Um, I had an experience where the guy that I have used to drive me in a taxi for the last five years, um, I get a phone call to say that he had murdered his wife. And three days before that, I had watched a lecture um, by a lawyer from, from the States. And the immediate thing that came to, to mind from that talk, he said, every person is more than the worst thing that they've done. And I watched Juan's talk, which you just talked about, and the exact same thing came up. And I think like what you give people an opportunity to do when they reveal these parts of themselves is to see humanity full stop, to see a person as a whole person. Um, and it's very easy and it's a very succinct thing and it's very nice and neat for us to box people off you know, to put people into boxes. Oh, he's a murderer. He's a lawyer. He is X, Y, Z. She is a mother, X, Y, and Z. People are whole people with so much more going on. And if we give them space to be heard and for their full story to be appreciated, we liberate ourselves and we liberate those people as well. It's remarkable. Yeah, 100%. What is your vision for One Last Talk? because it's become quite a movement. You know, I, I try, I used to have, I used to work very hard in having five-year visions and 10-year plans and everything else. And what I've learned as I get a bit older is to have a, a very strong intention for something, but not to hold it too tight, to, to allow these things to go where they need to go, to allow those things to actually inform me rather than me to inform it. So imagine, and this might get a bit, a bit woo-woo for some, but imagine that One Last Talk has its own energy. Imagine One Last Talk actually has its own voice. What would it be like for me to ask it what it needs from me rather than me determining what I think One Last Talk needs to become? 
So an example when I hold things, and I'm, I'm only speaking for me, but I think this is actually indicative for, for so many people around the world. When you hold anything tight, whether it's a woman, whether it's a man, whether it's a boy or whether it's a girl, whether it's a pet, whether it's a dream, when you hold anything tight, we have a tendency to squeeze the living shit out of it because we, we're too attached to the outcome. We become almost too invested in this thing blossoming in a particular way. But if you look at my fist right now, I don't know if your listeners are going to listen to this or watch this, but I'm assuming it's a combination of both. If they're just listening to this, I'm holding my fist. And imagine there's a, a seed for a flower in my fist and I'm squeezing the living shit out of this thing because I care so deeply for it. And I'm afraid to let go because if it falls, it might damage itself. And... Think about it bringing up a child. You have cotton wool on every piece of furniture and you have, you have everything covered. So if the kid falls anywhere, it's going to be safe. But then you have the same cotton wool emotionally, mentally, as it's six and seven and eight and 10 and 14. Eventually it leaves the nest. And it's like, holy shit, they fall on the first day and they hurt themselves. They have no idea what to do. But when you hold something so tight, yeah, there might be a little bit of sweat, moisture in there. But then there's no light and what I'm a huge advocate and a huge fan of is, is holding space for something, never giving up on it, but holding space for something. So when you ask me what my vision for one last talk is, is I don't really have a vision anymore. I used to. And when I held it too tight, that vision was, was growing, but it was painful and it was stressful and it just felt arduous and it felt like it was hard work. And I'm not afraid of hard work in the traditional sense, but we become so accustomed to this idea that anything worth doing needs to be hard, particularly in Ireland. Particularly in Ireland. I mean, the Irish are, are synonymous with that. We invented Guinness, rain, and, and, and guilt. But the other thing we do in Ireland brilliantly is we feel everything needs to be hard, and it doesn't. It just doesn't. I'm not saying there aren't hard days, but as I've let go of one last talk, particularly delivering it in a way that I know it has to be live events because that's my speciality. But if you think about it, that's my speciality. The reason it's live events is because of my insecurity, because I want it to be safe, I want it to work. But actually, one last talk is something that I think can, can live online or it might grow on its own. I want to gift one last talk away. I want to gift it to the people. I want it to be owned, by, literally owned by the people. The vision, and I don't think I've ever shared this, maybe once ever, is I want to crowdfund and I want to give it away. I want people to buy it. I want to literally... Crowd, imagine this, imagine that anyone on earth could buy 10 euros or $10 or $50 worth of One Last Talk shares and that they would own the concept. That's the vision for One Last Talk. It's always been the vision. I just am lacking in terms of the understanding of how to execute that, but I'm also trusting it at the same time. Yeah, find your gift and give it away, eh? I want, I want people to own it. And one last talk is not going to be just one last talk. It's going to be one last startup. It's going to be one last story. It's going to be one last conversation. There's a whole series of one last that I want to create, not for commercial reasons necessarily, but for impact reasons and to, to help people heal in different ways. Yeah. So what we haven't really revealed um, to those listening in the conversation yet is that Philip consults now with some of the most influential people in the world, um, massive companies around the place. Um, but what I love about it is that um, you have remained uh, true to yourself. You have remained in the greatest extent possible authentic to the message. Um, and you're a normal bloke that's willing to show up in the world, which is rare. Um, Having been on stages around the world, having been in the green rooms, having been in the boardrooms, um, how do you maintain that? Because so many people get lost in the hype of themselves. Well, I'd answer that question maybe in a way that you don't expect, but maybe I haven't. I don't think it's for me to judge. I don't think it's for me to decide whether I'm still grounded or not. That's number one. And I think people who tell you they're self-aware all the time or that they understand their pain, they're constantly telling you, or that they're self-aware or that they are humble or whatever. If they're constantly telling you, it's that they're, 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 they're obviously trying to cover over something that's, that's speaking to them. So I don't think, first of all, it's for me to necessarily answer that. But if, if it's true, if I've managed to stay grounded in some extent in the last five, 10 years, if I have, it would be down to a few key things. Number one is, 
the gift is not Philip McKernan. The gift is, is been given to me and it will be taken away from me at some point. That actually, when I do the work I do, the work is coming through me. And I'm not a very religious person, but I'd be a very spiritual person. So, but when you feel that you are the work, when you feel that when you get an incredible moment in a coaching moment, or that when you deliver a great speech, it's all you, that's, it, you're, 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 you're destined to be lost. The other thing in society, and I'm, I'm putting my two hands together and, you know, like a, like a pancake, and I'm lifting my fingers up to show almost like a pyramid. What happens is when you start to believe your own hype and you start to believe that the work is, you're the work, the work is not, or the work is you. What happens is people want to put you on a pedestal. We're in a society that we are just hell-bent on finding people to put on a pedestal. We got so desperate for people to put on pedestals when we started to move away from priests and the church and everything else, we went into kitchens in Dublin City. We went into kitchens in Limerick City. We went into kitchens in New York and we found chefs and we made them celebrities, celebrity chefs. And now we find real estate agents and we're making them celebrities on television. We have this desperate need to elevate people so we can push them up, so we can compare ourselves. But as you start to grow, you start to go up onto, onto, onto this pedestal, which becomes literally a pyramid. And right now we're all equal. Right and left are my shoulders, right, everyone's around me. But as I start to get elevated by people's adulation for me, but my own ego as well, I get pushed up in society. And then when I'm at the very top of that pyramid, I look to my right and look to my left. I am completely and utterly on my own. I am completely, completely isolated. And the only way down is one bumpy, bumpy, bad, tumbling ride to the bottom because that's the inevitability. Everyone, everyone that believes that they are the reason the work is powerful gets lost and they all end up in a very painful fall at the end. So the work is, and then the final piece is that any insights, any breakthroughs is not because of me. It's not down just to Philip McKernan. It's back to what we touched on earlier on is that the answer has already been lying inside of somebody's soul, inside of somebody's heart, and it has just been dormant. My job is to allow and to support the person to see that, to give themselves permission, to push them to see the parts themselves that they've been unwilling or cannot see on their own. So when they get a breakthrough and they go, McKernan, you're the best thing I've ever seen. Without you, I would have been miserable. Without, you know, all this stuff. And it's important that I understand that I've played a part, but I can't own it. And nor should I. Mm. Nor should I. I have no right to own that because that's not mine to own. That is the person. Because if I own that, let's go back to the individual the person that I've coached, the person that's in sitting in the audience, I'm depriving them of the opportunity to grow themselves. I'm, take, I'm disempowering that individual and I'm basically saying, without a coach, you're fucked. Without me, you would have been nothing. Really, that's what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, yeah, maybe I asked the right question. Maybe I refused to accept the answer that you've been giving to me and everybody else the last 10 years and I'm ruthless with that and I basically challenge you so deeply you got to a different, better answer. But you got to it. So there are some things that I do that I feel I do those very organically, very naturally. And I think those things, if anything, keep me grounded on a consistent basis. Mm. You're back in Ireland. The plan is to stay here for a period longer, um, maybe until around November or so. Um, you said that Ireland, leaving Ireland was one of the hardest things that you've ever had to do. Um, what does, what, what way do you want to bring Ireland more into your life going forward? <sighs> it's a big question for me. Um, during the Celtic Tiger, the visual that I have that haunts me is that I could feel, and this might sound condescending to my fellow Irish men and women, it's not meant to be, but if it does, that's, that's your stuff, it's not mine. The vision I had is that I was, I, I, I remember walking up, I think it was in a dream, but I remember this, feeling this, and I still feel this today, walking up onto a train tracks and, you know, 3.8 or 4.2 million, whatever the population of Ireland was standing on the train track, and I was the only one that could hear the train coming. I'm not suggesting that's the case. You know, all the, the economists were saying it's going to boom or it's going to bust or so everyone had an opinion. Everyone was an expert until it finally happened. But I could feel that we had lost our way a little bit as, 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 as a country. We'd lost our way a little bit as a, as a, as a community. We had lost the run of ourselves, as, as my mother would say. We had, you know, someone had opened up the bar and says, hey, drink is free. 
we had let our weight go. We had let our relationships go and we had let go of what's important to ourselves. And, and I could feel, I could hear the train and feel the train. And I was screaming at the people to get off and no one was listening to me. That's what it feels like. And I feel a natural part of my, my journey, and again, I might come across as arrogant, but that, that's with respect to your own stuff, is that my journey is, part of my journey is, is, is there's this idea that the prophet, and I don't consider myself a prophet, but the prophet is never accepted in their own town, ever. And I remember many years ago when I wasn't ready, when I was too insecure and I needed it too much, I needed it. I needed to be seen and recognized in Ireland. And I came back and I did a radio interview and the guy was, just so negative and he kept trying to attack me and I, I'm in my insecurity I think I attracted all that because I was trying for him I wanted him to accept me and I don't need Ireland to accept me I don't need the people but if if if, if people want to want to lean in and have deep meaningful conversations that's what I'm here Ireland me teaching in Ireland and bringing my work to Ireland is a natural part of my evolution. If I don't do that, I'll regret it for the rest of my life. And if it means I have to take a very significant financial um, you know, shift or I have to downsize and move away from America to do that, with the greatest respect in the world to my Canadian friends and our, our US clients, my home is Ireland, always has been. This is where I need to do my work and I want this to be my home base moving forward. I want to do all my work globally in Ireland and I want to run the events in Ireland. And um, it's, it's very, very, very uh, confidential right now, but I've... Right now, I have a, an offer in on a property to create a home for that work in on the west coast of Ireland, and uh, we'll know in the next week or two whether that happens. I want to create a well, centre for that work to, to, to have a home here in Ireland. Wonderful. We are in strange times. And similar to the period after the Celtic Tiger, we are going to be in need of more courageous conversations than ever. Um, I think and I believe very strongly that in the next number of years, as the implications, whatever they might be, of what we have seen and are seeing this year during the pandemic fall out, that people are going to need these spaces more than ever before. Yeah. I think with the greatest respect in the world, I'm not saying there's not real pain. I'm not saying there's not real loss. And there's been lots of people who have lost loved ones through this. Uh, people who perhaps do have underlying issues and are maybe of an age where, you know, inevitability was a passing in, in the next five or 10 years or six months or whatever. I'm not, I'm not trying to sound like that's not significant. But I do, I do predict that the fallout of this will have nothing to do with the pandemic itself, the virus itself. The real fallout for this is, is a, a, a further disconnectedness within society, within ourselves, within our communities. And we couldn't afford that. That's the one thing we could not afford because the greatest pandemic human, humanity has faced, I believe, which has been going on over the last 20 years, not the last six or eight months. And that has been loneliness within themselves and loneliness within society. And I see that being, being, being continued. And, and, and we are so... This is where I think this idea of pivoting your business. Everyone's going on about pivoting and pivoting this and pivot that and all that. That's all fine. I actually think this is a time to come back to yourself. This is a time to come home. Whether it's, it's literally or figuratively or, or, or whatever way you want to position that. But I think it's a time to come back to yourself. And I think it's a time to do something perhaps for you that you've wished you wanted to do or to at least experiment with it. And I am so bullish, and I don't mean that in economic terms, but I'm so bullish that live intimate events have been what we have specialized in, what we believe the future needs to be, not because it's, it's economically viable. We're not jumping on and suddenly becoming a Zoom business. We will have Zoom activities and some coaching programs online, but very little. I'm, I'm, I, I'm basically saying that we, I owe it to humanity to continue to have live events, and we're doubling down on that. And I believe that next year or the beginning, but the following year, we will see that coming back, and people will need to connect way more than they did before to make sure that they don't lose themselves even more in that in that separation. So, so that's where we're doubling down, and, and so much so that I'm trying to buy an event, not an event space, but a, a retreat center, uh, and to create something very magical for people to come from all over the world to, and, and hopefully people domestically as well. 
Yeah, I I really agree with that. And that loneliness separates us from ourselves, but it also leads to disconnect in every other part. Um, Rumi said, your task is not to seek for love, but to seek and find all the barriers within yourself that you have built against it. When I heard that, it, uh, it knocked me for six. People don't, a lot of people don't feel they, des they deserve love and that they deserve connection. Uh, it's not that they can't find it. It's that they just won't allow it to flow. They won't allow their husbands and their wives to love them in the way that their husbands and wives want to. And they become a, the saboteur in the, very, in the very relationships that they complain about. Philip, we're coming to a close. And as we come to a close, I always touch on the fragility of it all. And I know that you have two young children. Um, they are, as for every parent, a large part of your reason for being. I know that you have put it on the record that you won't live your life um, for them at the same time. Whenever your time might come, how do you want them to remember you? Great question. Um, I'd like them to remember that I loved them deeply and, and unconditionally. But I also had a respectful uh, level of love and, and care for myself. That I didn't lose myself in the parenting level, like a lot of us do. And that I had a very, very, very deep care for humanity. And I had a nice sliver of courage mixed in there as well. And I think it's as simple as that. I love it. It's about leaning into that. I love it. Philip, where can people go to find out more about you? philipmckernan.com and also onelasttalk.com because you mentioned it, so I'd, I'd, I'd maybe refer people to there as well. And um, they're also welcome to check out giveandgrow.com, which is the documentary we did a number of years ago. So philipmckernan.com is the, is the main kind of go-to website, if you like. Philip McKernan. Thank you very much. I want to take a moment to thank all of you. All of you who buy into the philosophy behind Only Human. This idea that we are each a masterpiece and a work in progress simultaneously. It's because of you that we have reached the milestone of 10,000 downloads in just 29 episodes. The way that you can continue to support what Only Human is all about and to continue to build the community is by sharing this with a friend, by posting online or telling someone about it over coffee or dinner. We're all about human connection and we want to connect with as many people as we possibly can through this podcast. Until next time, stay well, stay curious. Cheers.